following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. Good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning. Today, um, what I'm wanting to speak on, I want to speak on the book of 1 Samuel. Hands up if you've read the book of 1 Samuel. Hands up if you've read it in the last couple of years. Oh, there's a few. Oh, exciting. This is a good book. This is a book that is, are we on that? There we go. This is a book that is in the history genre of the Bible. There are six genres and it's in the Old Testament. And this is the book where you get that famous story of David and Goliath. I'm not going to speak on that story, but it's worth just pausing to remember what that story is about. I've been looking at the story of David and Goliath lately, not from the lens of an eight-year-old in Sunday school, but from the lens of a 39-year-old who now understands a little bit more about life, the complexities that are in it, the pressures that can come against you at every side, and the giants, metaphorically, that can be in the land. And this call upon a nation who actually was a group of people, the Israelites, who weren't yet a nation. They were a roaming people still, trying to find their place in the land and trying to find the land in which they would dwell and establish themselves and coming against these Philistines. And these Philistines are thick and they're fast. They're the most advanced of their time. This is a book that is written in the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. If you don't know what that is, I don't know either, other than it was significant when it comes to warfare, the political realm, and what God is spiritually doing at that time. We know the story. There's a valley And there's two mountains and the Philistines are on one and the Israelites are on the other. And day after day for 40 days, this big giant who is only eight feet tall, like as a kid, I thought he was like eight foot tall, pretty tall, um, is speaking threat after threat to the Israelites. But this isn't a threat that didn't come from nowhere. This was a Philistine threat. And the Philistines were the early adopters. Israel, who are still not even yet a formed nation, they're just doing the best they can with what they have. They're the late adopters. They're behind the development of where the culture is going. They're doing, doing their best. And Goliath, this giant, able to hold all this bronze, all this iron, all this weaponry. And the verse is going into detail explaining the physicality that marked the authority and the fear that was Goliath. Keep speaking these threats and no one in Israel has the courage to come against him. Until a small shepherd boy who isn't even there, doesn't even know what's going on, he's back looking after sheep, rocks up to the battlefield to serve his brothers, seven of which are in the army some bread and some food. And without a flinch or a concern, goes, oh, I'll do it. And with a throw of one stone, he's got five, he's prepared, but with a throw of one, he actually conquers this giant and the tide turns. The status quo turns. 
what is happening politically turns and what is happening in the culture completely turns and we start to see this progression of the Israelite people forming into a nation and this nation becoming the people of God and this nation being very different to the other nations of the world. 1 Samuel is a history of the monarchy that was being set up at that time. One of the things that made the difference between Israel and all the other nations is they didn't have a king. And as is true human form, they wanted to be like the other nations and they too wanted to have a king. And God's there going, um, hello, I'm your king. No, no, we want a human one, one that we can see and, and interact with. You're just this holy presence that we, we are grateful for, but it's not quite cutting it. God in his grace says here. And so 1 Samuel is in that transition from judges where there's warriors in war to the setting up of a political monarchy where there would now be kings. And although 1 Samuel is in the historical genre, a lot of commentators actually think it's a prophetic book about the coming kingdom of God. So it's a book about transitions. And I want to have a look at it today, share it with you, um, and unpack a few things. Because what you discover is that Israel at this time is on a threshold. A threshold is when you're at the place or point of entering or beginning. That what was behind is not where things are going to go, but you're not quite yet in the new, but all you know is the past isn't working and you don't want to go back there. And the threshold is that point of will you step over and enter that new or will you stay behind it no matter how close you are behind it, whether you're behind it one foot or a thousand, you're still behind it. And this threshold moment is this space where something new could actually happen and something new could begin. And if you've been listening to our last series and you've been reading between the lines to what people are talking about, we feel something like that is happening amongst us, not just at Red, but in the church around the world, particularly in the Western world, where there are a heck of a lot of Goliaths that are progressing in front of us. And we're just trying our best to become the people of God that live from a different kingdom. And yet we feel that we're behind and we're trying to straddle both. And we're confused, we're disorientated, we're restless. But in the midst of all that, this God who is king is going, I am not worried. I have got a perfect plan and I am at perfect peace about it. And I am just looking for the people who are willing to step over that threshold. And I'm looking for the churches that are willing to step over that threshold so that together we can actually do something about my kingdom and have that be ushered through the earth. That's from a God's people perspective. But I also know that individually, I know that there are people in this room, in that space of a threshold, that place or point of beginning or entering. And something is stirring, even though you can't quite articulate it, but you know it's there. Threshold also means the level above which something is true or will take place and below which it is not or it will not. So similar to that first definition, the level above which something is true and is going to take place. So if you're above, this is going to happen, this is a reality, but below, it will or it will not. In other words, if we stay here, it won't happen. If we come here, it will happen. And every generation, 
Every generation, not only every person, but every generation has an invitation from Christ to say, will you follow me? And to follow me is to say no to the status quo and yes to courage and obedience. And that's what I want to look at today based on 1 Samuel. In this threshold, do you get my design? What do you notice about the threshold? Above the threshold you have David, below the threshold you have Saul. And 1 Samuel is essentially a character study. There isn't just David and Saul, although that's who I'm going to focus on today. There's Hannah, there's Jonathan, there's the prophet Samuel himself. And if I was an English teacher, which I'm not, I would go to town on this book. So any English teachers out there, man, you've got some gold within this book. But essentially what you've got is a threshold and a story, a historical account of where David, despite the odds and despite reason and despite anything that every voice around him would say, enters not just in the story of David and Goliath, but right through the book, this incredible courage. And that is the need of the hour today. A step up into boldness and into courage And Saul represents this fear. And when I just recently went through this book, I I read it once in the NIV. I then read it in the NLT. I wanted to get onto 2 Samuel and God's like, no, back to 1 Samuel. I'm like, really? So then I read it in the message. Then I was excited. I'm going to go to 2 Samuel. And God's like, no, back to 1 Samuel. I'm like, serious? So we're we're now going through a commentary. And what you notice when you read it, I get Saul. I actually relate more to Saul than I do to David. And I know that David's my eight-year-old Sunday school hero, but when it comes to the things that shape my behaviour and my perspective, I'm there with Saul, and my heart is actually for Saul, and I actually feel sorry for Saul. Saul is an analogy and a metaphor, a lived real one of the human condition that I'm immersed in on this earth, that you're immersed in on this earth. And David is this prophetic sign and symbol of a different way. And we know that Jesus himself comes from the line of David, the fulfillment of that prophetic sign and symbol of a completely different way of seeing, a completely different way of behaving. And so where Saul is the norm, so to be human is to have fear. Courage is the need of the hour. So I want to take you to a story in 1 Samuel 13. If you prefer to look at your Bibles, the choice is yours. It's on page 193 in the Bibles in front of you. But otherwise, we're looking at 1 Samuel 13. And a bit of background here. Samuel is a prophet. So he's the one who's actually negotiating the transition. He's God's appointment on the earth to be his voice, to help Israel, who are a scattered people, try and gather together and enter this threshold moment. And Samuel has said to, this is where I get confused, Samuel says to Saul, okay, this is what's going to happen, the Philistines are coming, remember they are the big, big army, I want you to wait seven days, wait for me for seven days and then I'm going to come to you and I will tell you what to do. So Samuel is out the voice who gives Saul the counsel and the advice and the conduit of God is not there. And Saul is there in the midst of this war. And starting at verse 6, when the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits, 
and cisterns. Footnote, there's a lot of fear in the camp. Verse 7, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the story the implicit interpretation there is they're actually going backwards, not forwards. They've already come through the Jordan. God has performed miracles there, but they've decided to go back. And that's precisely what fear does. Fear keeps you, it keeps me, it keeps us as a people captive. And we go further back entrenched because of it. And this is what's happening in real time in this story. Saul remains at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, exactly what Samuel told him to do. The time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he says, bring to me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and he offers up a burnt offering. But just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Face value, this is a very understandable story. Saul has been told to wait seven days before Samuel appears to tell him exactly how to, how to fight the warfare and defeat the enemies of Philistines. Seven days come, Samuel's not here yet. There's no phone to check up where he is. Like, there's nothing. There's, no inter- there's nothing. And in real time, his men are scattering left and right. They're going backwards over Jordan. They're disbanding. Fear is contagious. So if you've got fear upon fear upon fear, then the atmosphere is marked by fear. And you start to breathe in the fear that is around you. And so Saul, in his humanity, is like, right, well, obviously something's happened to Samuel. I'm going to have to take his role. And burning offerings... Fellowship offerings and burnt offerings is reserved only and solely as a holy anointing to priests. And so in this case, Saul, out of fear, decides to lead outside his posting. And he takes on the mantle that is reserved just for the priest, which is Samuel, the prophet. From a human perspective, I'm like, so would I. But he also encounters or seeks God's favour as an afterthought. Samuel arrives within seven days, just not the seven-day timing Saul had. It doesn't say exactly what time Samuel came, but Samuel came within seven days. But Saul couldn't wait for the fulfilment of the seven days. And Samuel says to him, what have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, Footnote, my set time. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. Hands up if you think about praying to God as an afterthought and you forget until it's hard. Welcome to the human condition. Saul is exactly the same. He's in the midst of war. The tough, the going is tough. And that says, crap, I haven't sought God's favour. And then this final line has been really sitting with me. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. I felt compelled. To feel compelled is to go, is to activate, to create a response. It's in response to a drive or an urge or even just a part of your pathology that rises up 
and overwhelms the, the reason centre of your brain. To feel compelled is to have your, your reason and your wisdom overwhelmed by emotion. And to therefore decide to intervene out of compulsion, not out of wisdom. Out of compulsion, not out of submission. Out of compulsion because of fear. So when you look at Saul and you go on throughout the book of 1 Samuel, you're like, man, he's so human. I totally relate. But man, this guy, he's got a dark side. And this dark side sabotages consistently. And this dark side comes up from over his posting and sabotages what God's got for him. But because he's the king of Israel, the very first one, it's actually sabotaging across the board for not just a community, not just a church, but an entire nation that God is trying to form and develop. Saul is chosen because he has great externals. He's tall, he's good-looking. The actual passage says he stands head and shoulders above the rest. And so from face value, from human value, he is the leader you would want. He is the king you would want. But deep down in the internal core that no one can see, he was deeply insecure. And when the going gets rough, And those insecurities are given air to dictate. He sabotages, he sabotages, he sabotages. And not only that, but he actually descends into madness. It's almost as if the more he feeds that beast, the more he goes down into this this madness. And you read the story, and if if you're like me, tender-hearted and soft, you too will feel sorry for him. Fear, part of the human condition, completely stems to the fact that we are detached from the very one who gives us peace, from the very one who gives us identity and security, meaning and belonging and purpose. We are detached from that. It is our modus operandi. Marketers know it, and Lunig knows it. There are two motivations, love or fear. And to be ruled or compelled out of fear is to, based on this story, is to take control. And there is nothing wrong with being activated. There is nothing wrong in implementing. There is nothing wrong in taking charge. There is nothing wrong in actually fulfilling purpose. But if it is coming out of a posture of fear, when it comes to what God wants for you and for the people around you, it's actually detrimental. And it means that we operate outside of the posting that God has given us. Did you know that you have a specific role to play on this earth? And it's not a me, myself and I role. I've been trying my best to talk to the PM about how much the idea of calling has become an idol and centred around the me, myself and I. But as you know, red says more than me. It seems to be the gift that keeps on giving. The more you live, the more you realise how deeply that penetrates into our formation and our sanctification as disciples. The concept of calling has been abused and turned inside out and back to front. Idolised. And so in that sense, I use some hyperbole in saying you don't have a calling. The church has a calling. Collectively. 
And because the church has a calling as part of God's body and his workmanship, you get to contribute to that greater calling. And it's not about you, it's about the head and the lordship of Jesus Christ and who he is being realised throughout the world. And he doesn't need us to do it. In his grace, he goes, I've wired you for such a time as this. And this is the part I want you to play. I just went to grab a drink. And the guys on hospitality, the brewers, were like, oh, so are you nervous? I'm like, no. And I meant to say, gosh, I prefer to speak a sermon than do hospitality, man, (laughs) any day. That is not my gift. You have a contribution. And we desperately need it. But if you walk outside of that and you try to take someone else's that God hasn't given for you, or you think it could be better that way or this way or whatever it is in the human, human world, are you being motivated, motivated by trust and a submission to the king or by fear? I've been convicted how much I've been operating out of fear in ways I didn't even know. And I've been convicted with this threshold moment here, that's not going to work. Taking control can cost you the threshold. In fact, taking control will cost you the threshold. It costs Saul... And by the end of the story, the anointing is taken off him. His kingship is taken off him. As I said before, he descends into madness and he misses out on participating in what God was actually doing. It was different to what he thought was happening. But what God was actually doing at the time and why it was because of his dark side where the fear could manifest. Gary McIntosh and Samuel Reamer say this. The dark side is actually a natural result of human development. It is the inner urges, the compulsions and the dysfunctions of our personality that often go unexamined or remain unknown to us until we experience an emotional explosion. Have you noticed how how easy it is to be a person of peace when things are going fine? I love that bit. It remains unknown until we experience an emotional explosion. Something happens and, and interactions, circumstances, I don't know, the list will be endless But to know what your dark side is, is to go, what happens when things aren't going well? What happens when you're put into a situation that requires nothing but utter trust? What happens inside? What are the compulsions that come? An emotional explosion or some other significant problem that causes us to search for a reason why. What is happening for you at the moment that is causing you to search for a reason why? And what is the mirror reaction to your internal world? That therein is an indication of of the dark side within. That is super normal because all of us are human on this earth. At times the dark side seems to leap up on us unexpectedly, but in reality it has slowly crept up on us. It's been a lifetime in the making. And just like Saul, our dark side needs to be renewed for us to climb over the threshold, to encounter the newness and a new beginning. 
I love God and his grace. He gives Saul another chance. And then 1 Samuel 15, we won't go into detail, we don't have time. I'll give you the, the summary. You basically have another war scenario. You've got Philistines. This time you've got Amalekites too. So it's not one enemy, it's two enemies. They are surrounded from every side, but the instructions are clear. And Samuel comes to Saul and he goes, Saul, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Amalekites and I want you to destroy utterly everything. God is with you and you will win. And in that winning, destroy everything. So Saul trots off with the confidence of the prophecies behind him and God's strength behind him, and he destroys almost everything. He destroys all the stuff he wouldn't want, like all the weak stuff and the the dysfunctional stuff. But he decides to keep the prize cattle, number one. And number two, he decides to not kill the king of the Amalekites, Agog. So he brings Agog back as a bit of a prize trophy and you've got the lowing of cattle in the background as they all bring it back to the camp. And Samuel, as a prophet, knows that he's disobeyed. And he's like, Saul, what are you doing? Because I know what this means for you. But not only that, I know what it means for God's people. This situation totally sucks right now. So he already knows what, ha- what happens. He gets to the camp in Israel and he's like, where is Saul? Sometimes prophets know some stuff but not others. How can he know Saul has disobeyed and yet not know where Saul is? And get this. They go, oh, Saul, Saul is building a monument to himself in Carmel. <laughs> Contextual version of Instagram. And so Samuel is like, this guy has just completely and utterly disobeyed. But he's building a monument to himself. So Saul comes back and he trots in full of confidence and um, self-approval. And Samuel's like, dude, what have you done? He goes, I obeyed everything you told me. And I ruined them and killed them and la, la, la. And Samuel just goes, so what is this lowing of cattle, I hear? And who is this king, I hear? And what you have here is the utter blindness that our pride can put over us where we think we can be obeying God, but what we're actually doing is obeying God on our terms. That obedience to God becomes whatever we prefer it to be. Not this complete submission of complete abandonment and surrender. That God is above us, he's above the threshold, he has the full view in mind, and therefore he's got set things that are out playing at certain times so that plan can be released. And that plan being released is dependent on our surrender and dependent on our obedience. And Saul does not even know that he has done that. And this is where Samuel says one of the most beautiful passages in 1 Samuel. Uh, it's quite well known. If, if you're not familiar with it, it's worth chewing on. And Saul, Samuel says to Saul, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen. Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. This harkens back 
to Bjorn's message a couple of weeks ago where he gave that famous Bonhoeffer quote that one act of obedience is better than a hundred sermons. You entering into obedience this week is better than this. It's better than hundreds of these. Because as you step into obedience, you're stepping up on the threshold. As you step up on the threshold, your obedience creates new possibilities that couldn't happen otherwise. As you step into obedience, you actually bring the kingdom of God behind you and a new fragrance starts to fill the situation that you're in and the people that are around you. This, this is just talking. And God knows we don't need more talking or more opinion. That we are educated beyond our level of obedience. And so what we see is this outline here. At the threshold is marked by listening, obedience, and submission. The opposite of these things is the last part of that passage, rebellion. And rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshipping idols. And so because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Why? Not because he's mean to Saul. But stubbornness and witchcraft have no place in the kingdom that he's wanting to usher through his people. The word listen in Hebrew is shema. And it doesn't mean to just have sound waves go over your ears. It means to actually respond to what you've heard and to act on and to integrate that into the way in which you live. In fact, it goes a step further. You'll be hard-pressed to find a translation for the word obedience in the Hebrew Scriptures. If you look up obedience in the Hebrew Scriptures, it also means shema. In other words, to listen and to obey are exactly the same thing. There is no difference. Listening is not hearing. Listening is obeying. So the two go hand in hand. Why? Because of this ultimate trust, there's an ultimate story, a bigger story and a bigger power and a better king who's not human, who actually knows the game plan, knows what he's calling you to, knows what he's wanting to free in you and empower in you, and then knows collectively what he's wanting to do amongst the people. And so after this beautiful piece of poetry, I feel, Saul replies and says, I did it because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. It's me. If I had to put my feet up, it's so me. You've got so many voices going on in your life right now. You've got the voices in your head just trying to thought. You've got the voices in your family, you've got the voices in your church community, in your discipleship groups, you've got the voices in your neighbourhood, you've got the voices in the media. That doesn't stop, that's like a tsunami wave. Even the off button doesn't work. But this is about voice recognition, where you get to choose. Amongst all those voices that are speaking at you, a lot of them stirring and feeding your fear... But a lot of the voices that are speaking, you get to choose the one you listen to. As Jesus says, descended from David, my sheep 
hear my voice. They know it. Our flesh, which is overrun by fear, lacks the courage to believe it could be true. But to climb above the threshold is to dare believe that that clean, clear, hopeful, faith-filled, gentle voice is actually got the ingredients to what to do. And so Saul, as a parody for humanity, does not do that. And it costs him the threshold and does a lot of destruction in the meantime. And so whilst he's being king and doing his thing not too well, there's a young shepherd boy. Not known. He's in solitude, actually. He's on a mountain looking after a couple of hundred sheep. And in that time of solitude and isolation, something's being formed. You've then got Samuel, who's in deep grief that Saul has just continually disobeyed. And because of that, the kingship has to be taken off him. And God says, I found one. This one's going to be good. You wouldn't have heard of him. You wouldn't know him. But I want you to go to the house of Jesse. Jesse has eight sons. I want you to go there and I will show you the one that is to be appointed. And David is so unseen, so unknown, and so in this other world that Jesse doesn't even bring him in the parade of sons to choose. And so Saul, uh, Samuel, go, Samuel goes through and he looks at Eliab and he goes, whoa, warrior, broad shoulders, strong, gruff, let's choose him. And God goes, no, my anointing's not on him. And Samuel, as a prophet, knows if the anointing is not on him, you can't go to a threshold. Because it's not human-driven, it's God-driven. He says, like, can't do it, okay. Goes to the next one and goes, this one, this one's good. He's got some good facial hair, strong bone, jaw. Let's get this guy, da-da-da. Again, no. It cannot be this one because my anointing is not on him. This same story happens seven times. And each time the lineup gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so Samuel is like, okay, we've got one left. It must be this one. And again, exact same message. No, it can't be this one. My anointing's not on him. Samuel probably in real time is probably guessing his prophetic skills right now because he's like, I'm sure you told me, Jesse, the house of Jesse, la, la, la. And Jesse, uh, he says to Jesse, are you sure? Because I, I'm sure, I swore God told me you and your sons. Have you got, is there another one? He goes, oh, David. Ignored by culture, ignored by his dad. Yet within that posting that he has sat in, that he has surrendered in, that he has been submissive in, God has been doing something and he has been forming something and at the right time that something is going to be released. And so they're like, all right, if you want to look at David, they grab him, he's little, he's scrawny. Turns out to be good looking apparently in the end. But at the time, he's probably going through that awkward teenage years. I don't know. I'm reading between the lines. Whatever it is, he's not fit for king material. And even Samuel has a crisis. He goes, God, are you sure? Are you sure, God, that you know what you're doing? God replies with this. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance 
but the Lord looks at the heart. He is not interested in the externals. He's not interested in the things that can be paraded about, whether it be past experience, looks, abilities, study, whatever, how great your LinkedIn profile is, how many friends you've got that aren't really friends, but they look good. He is not interested at all because that stuff is below the threshold. And the threshold, below the threshold, is not going to get us there. And yet, he sees this David who has the right heart, and he has that right heart because it's formed in isolation. There is a part of your life that for whatever reason doesn't fit in. It could be singleness where everyone else is married. It could be barrenness where everyone else has children. It could be other people get to live their career dream and I'm still stuck at whatever it is. That family, why are they so together and just have unity and we, we go home from church and we just have a bunk We've got sickness that is the undercurrent. We've got constant delayed opportunities and hope deferred. And gosh, we're sick of the disappointment of that. We can't afford the holidays. Well, the list will go on and on and on and on and on. You'll have your thing. I don't know what it is. But you know what it is. That thing that means that you feel like you're on the outer. Well, everyone is actually in the lineup. What if? God in his sovereignty has allowed that, has intentionally frustrated your plans because he wants to use that very scenario to form something in you that he desperately needs in your future because you have a posting. You have a part to play and it will be different to the one on your left and to your right. But what if it's God's sovereign hand doing something different? This is what happened to David. And because of that space of isolation, God did something else. And he started to learn to fight lions and bears. He started to learn and sit on an outcrop completely bored and write songs. He taught himself the lyre, which was later used to soothe Saul in his madness. Soft skills that became weaponry in the warfare that was being executed across God's people. He learnt to sling stones. And this is courage. It takes courage to not be part of the crowd. It takes courage not to follow the standard spectrum of what world, the world tells you you should have and do and the litany of things that you, you list that help you feel like a valid human being and a stable person in this society. Whatever family culture you're from, it's the air we breathe. It's the Christian culture we breathe. And it's not above the threshold. It's below the threshold. Above the threshold, it takes courage to accept and embrace where God has got you right now. And where Saul walked outside his posting and decided to take control, David fully embraces his posting. 
And it's submission. It's submission to dare to trust that the God whose glory is above the heavens and all around the earth has a completely different story playing out in your life. Submission isn't just a word to chuck out there. Have you noticed how our human default is to decide that we know what is right and wrong? Not God. What really should be happening, what really should not be happening. That since the fall... Our modus operandi is to actually rebel against God and decide to judge things for ourselves, to determine what should or shouldn't be happening, that our judgment is clearer and more accurate than God's. But to take a posture of submission is to completely abandon because you have this understanding that he is the only trustworthy king, the only one who is in full control, who can see the whole thing, who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows the future better than you even possibly can guess, and who knows what he's doing. And that what if the key to that situation changing in your life, that niggly dynamic, that frustrating circumstance, that work tension, whatever it is, we've all got our list, What if the key is to take a posture of complete submission? Because that key changes the atmosphere. That step of obedience creates new possibilities. And we know with David that he went on to build the temple for the presence of the Lord. He went on to give birth to Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs. He went on to write half the Psalms. And he went on to give birth to the king. Jesus himself. Do not underestimate what your submission and your posture of obedience does in the spirit. I'm going to tell you one last story. And to me, it eclipses Goliath. It eclipses any other story in Samuel. It hits me for six. (coughs) That was not tears. That was... (coughs) Although I do usually cry. Not today. Courage. 1 Samuel 24. David defeats Saul's enemies. David calms Saul when he's in madness and he plays music that soothes him. He has a heart of service. He has a heart of submission. If you want to look at humility, you look at this portion of David's life. Something happens later on, but at this time, he is completely surrendered, humble, the sort of person you'd want around because he's got a heart of service. And Saul gets jealous of this, another part of our human nature. And Saul decides to turn on David and not only cause havoc, but to pursue him, to kill him, to destroy the very person who's helped him out. And so they are on a pursuit. They go on multiple pursuits. This is just one of them. It's towards the end of the various pursuits. And David and his men have gone running away and they're found in Gedi, which is a beautiful spring. I've actually been there and it is, it is beautiful in the midst of desert, this spring, and there's caves everywhere. And David decides with his men to hide in the back of a cave and get some respite. And you wouldn't believe it. But while they're there, Saul, who is in pursuit of David, rocks up. Doesn't see them. Because they're at the back of the cave. Saul's at the front of the cave. And you can kind of picture it. He's sort of at the edge, having a good look out. Wondering where this David is. It's behind him. 
True story, knees take a leak. I find this so funny. When I was in there in Gedi, I was jumping over all these puddles going, is that Saul's urine? Is that Saul's urine? (laughs) And he takes a leak. And while he's taking a leak in real time, you've got David's men who are saying, look at what God has done. He has put Saul into your hands. You should kill him. Do you notice the parallels of man's voice? That men can even claim to tell you things, humankind can tell you things for God's purposes, but they're not of God? No. And David is so trained in the antithesis of Saul that he doesn't listen to the pressure behind him, nor to the fear of being pursued himself. And the passage tells us he doesn't kill him. What he does is he sneaks up. I would love to have seen this, but anyway. Sneaks up and he just cuts a corner of Saul's robe, runs back. As I've been reading this in real time in the Bible, I I read that and I'm like, cool, that's a great historical story to read, but imagine that in real time now. Imagine that in the situations you're in now, actually taking that act of submission. Knowing your posting and knowing your God and knowing who he is so well that you don't actually feel compelled to take control and intervene and change a circumstance. You just take the corner of it. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I have to close the Bible. I'm like, I'm so far from that. It's not funny. Open the Bible again. Okay. So not only has David not killed Saul, his enemy, and only just gone to cut a corner of the robe, he then feels bad for it. Who is this person? What sort of heart would feel bad for actually getting any, any just inch, couple of inches of retribution on the person who's trying to kill you? This isn't someone who's just spreading malicious gossip. This is someone who is hell-bent on destroying your very life and killing you, and he does that. And as the passage goes on, and I'm hit for six at this, David says, I will not lift my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Good leader or not, irrelevant, he's God's anointed. Good king or not, irrelevant, he's God's anointed. And so trained is David in the ways and the heart of the king, the king. He will not betray what he knows. That if something has God's anointing, You don't intervene with your human reason. This is a man submitted purely, completely to God. Who understands who God is and understands his ways. In this obedience comes submission, creates this incredible courage. And this incredible courage actually takes Israel above the threshold to a whole new way of living, a whole new way of seeing, and as I said before, gives birth to the Messiah himself. Because this one, this was a man after God's own heart. So as I said, this is not a time for business as usual. Business as usual isn't working. This is a time for obedience and courage. So wherever God has got you, can I encourage you to embrace that context, whatever it is. 
Can I encourage you to listen to his voice, not the voice of others, even if they claim to speak the voice of, of godly wisdom? Listen to the shepherd. And every single one of us, we're at different stages in our faith, but every single one of us can make one step of obedience. And every single one of us can encourage each other in that step. And there are Davids in this room. There are acts of courage that I know about in this room and acts of obedience that I don't only see changing things for you, but you know what, when I see them happening, that actually ministers to me. What would it look like if we all entered that posture together and encouraged each other in it? We are now going to enter into a time of communion. There will be people on the sides to pray. If you need prayer for anything, please take the opportunity. If you particularly need prayer about anything that's been stirred in this message, please take it. For those who are visiting, um, we come forward and we actually take your cup of tea.